We're in Isaiah. Uh, we're going to look at 52 and also 53. I do want to start reading, though, in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 1, so we can get some background for where we are located in this book. So follow along with me, starting in verse 1. It says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually, all the day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice, together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has barred his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out, go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. I read that this morning because I think it's important to see the promise before we get into our passages. We see this promise here of redemption for the people of God. There's, there's actually hints in it that sound really familiar there towards the end of what I read of the Exodus. Where it says, don't touch any unclean thing, purify yourselves. You're getting ready to go, right? And you've got to get up and go and be ready. And this is what the people would be thinking about, I'm sure. is how God redeemed them from Egypt. But it's interesting, as we look over this little section, they were sold for nothing into captivity, it says, but the Lord is going to redeem them, not using any money, no need for money, but they will be redeemed. And notice how in these verses that we read, the love of God for his own people just permeates the whole thing. No blaming them or anything, which I find fascinating because it's their fault they are where they are. Yeah, we don't see blame. We, we don't even see frustration in this chapter. We just see the love of God being poured out on his people and these promises of redemption to take place. And God declares here that he himself will make known to all the earth the salvation. We see that there in verse 10. To all the earth, everybody's going to take notice of what is happening and what is taking place. And what God is doing here is he's promising something big. He's promising something very big to his people. And in, and in the end of 52 and in chapters 53, and what we're going to look at is he declares to his people how this is going to happen. He doesn't leave them wondering, but he's going to share with them this is exactly how it's going to take place. 
And your mind would go back to what we've already looked at in Isaiah because it's about this baby. This baby that's been talked about already, that has been promised. This Jesus that we celebrate today comes with a purpose, has came with a purpose. And we see that here. So look in verses 13 to 15 of, of chapter 52. This is kind of a summary of what chapter 53 will be about, and so we won't stay here too long. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Here at the end of 52, like I said, we see this summary that the Messiah is going to come, the work of the Messiah, that he's going to act wisely, that he will be exalted and lifted up. And this is like a true exaltation that people are going to take notice and recognize and exalt him and praise him and lift high his name. He shall be beaten, though, we see in the very next verses, beaten so badly that you don't even recognize him. But that through this, there'll be a sprinkle on many nations and that it will call, cause even the kings to bow to him. And we see this again more clearly in chapter 53. Now I want to remind you that as we look at 53 and here at the end of 52, I think for, for us today to read this words, we just kind of nod our heads and we like reading it because we see it as truth. But this was proclaimed 700 years before Christ. Okay, 700 years before Christ would come, this was written. And we need to remember that as we think about how Jesus so perfectly fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament, and that there's something very important to that. And so let's read in sections here, 53, and first we're going to start with verse 1. There's a question asked here. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, I think Isaiah asks a question that is valid. And the question is, who has believed what he has heard? Now, the reason I think this is a valid question is because if you're somebody who part of your job is to talk and give direction. So if you're a teacher, I would say if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a manager at where you work, if you have any, any responsibility of other people under you, I think you would understand this as a valid question. The question is, does anybody hear what I'm saying? You're not doing it. I don't know if you're hearing me. And there can almost be a frustration when we're at that level of how can I make this clearer? The toy on the ground needs to be picked up and put on the shelf. What? Okay, I don't know how to say it any better. The toy on the ground needs to go on the blue shelf. What? Oh my gosh, is that not frustrating? But it's, it is a valid question. I am speaking, but it seems as if nobody here understands or is doing what is being said. And Isaiah here is asking this question, who has believed what they have heard from us? Right? He's been declaring destruction, but he's also been declaring salvation. And the question is, are you believing what is being said here? This is a valid question for us this morning. Are you believing what you are hearing here? 
Do you actually believe it? Because if you believe it, you're going to live as if you believe it. But the answer then is though given in the next line, which is helpful. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is an important line. Because it talks about the arm of the Lord being revealed. Now I know I speak of this often, but I, I want to speak of this often and I want us to understand it. Because we need to be reminded that it is the work of God alone to open the eyes of the blind. This morning, as I talk to some of you, and you might not like to hear this, but you are blind. You're blind. And I am not an optometrist. And I don't have the ability to open your eyes today. I wish I did. I wish there was some pill I could give you that would guarantee that your eyes would finally be open, that you could finally see very clearly the truths of God's word. But the fact of the matter is, I don't have that ability or power. What I can do is I can tell you about Jesus. I can tell you who he is. I can read to you the word of God. I can share with you the truths of the word of God. But the fact of the matter is, what it takes to open your eyes to the truth and for you to actually believe what is being said is a mighty work of God to open your eyes. And that's the prayer of us as believers whose eyes have been opened is that God will open your eyes. And this is one of the great uh, blessings, though, of God is God still today opens the eyes of the blind. And this morning, I hope he'll open your eyes to where you can answer the question, who here has believed You'd be able to say, oh, I have, because he's opened my eyes to see the truth this morning. Because what we're about to embark on as we go through Isaiah chapter 53, and as you've already heard read from Pastor Spencer, is the central truth of all of Scripture. This little baby that we celebrate is very cute. We have these kids up on stage. It's very cute, isn't it? It's very innocent. But if we wanted to be honest with them, we could kneel down with them or hold that little baby and say, get ready for a ride. It's about to get tough. Some of you cute babies, you're going to be ugly people. You're not going to achieve in this world everything you think you're going to achieve. Your parents are going to maybe disappear. You're going to have tragedy in your life. You're going to have difficulties and struggles. And this life's going to be a grind. Get ready for it. Because only the strong are going to survive out here. I mean, that's really the truth. Right? And so what hope do we have in this baby? Well, that's what we're going to see. Is that this baby would take on the truth of this world, of what this world has to offer. Uh, but he would blow the doors open. He would blow the doors open. And that's important for us today. And so we're praying that God will open the eyes of the blind this morning. That he will reveal himself to us once again as he has throughout time. So we'll go, let's move on to verses 2 through 3. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Now, what a great prophecy we have from Isaiah of the Messiah to come. Hey, he's not going to be anything special to look at. He's not going to be a very special person. I mean, that's, that's what we have here. And, and this may seem very insignificant to you, but I'm guessing in reality it's not. And here's why. How many of you have said at some point in your life, you know, that guy just doesn't seem very presidential to me. And that's what your qualification for a president. He doesn't look it. He doesn't look like a senator. Take your kids to school. And you walk in and you meet the teacher for the first time and you're like, this doesn't look like a teacher. You don't know anything about the person. But you look in the room and they're not very good at cutting out things and putting them on the bulletin board and you're like, I don't think this person can uh, be a good teacher. We can't say that looks don't matter because in our life it does a lot. Or maybe you really like the TV show, which is on in my house at times and I despise it, The Voice. You heard of that show? And the judges are supposed to sit backwards and they hear, they hear the people singing without looking at them. And so often when they turn around, they say, I can't believe that voice comes from that body. Well, what a statement. Why? Because looks matter, don't they? And so when we see people, oftentimes we put great value on looks and perception. We want to appear confident. We want to appear strong, wise, we want to appear understanding, right? This is, this is what we teach. I mean, just recently, I was telling my son, this is, again, with sports, but I said, you need to make them think at least you're confident, that there's no fear. If they see fear, they smell it, and they're going to attack you. At least look like you're not scared, right? You, you can't come across that way, because that's what we're looking for. And so appearance does matter. And when we're starting to talk about our Savior, the Savior, the, the one who's going to save us, who we're going to follow, do we really want somebody who's completely unassuming? Someone who's not special to look at, yet this is exactly what Isaiah says he will be. I'm guessing when you think of Jesus, you picture him as a good-looking guy. That's my guess. When you think of Jesus, good looks come to your mind. This is why Ryan always played Jesus in our plays. Best looking guy we could find. It wasn't acting ability. It wasn't anything like that. Best looking guy we could find. Here he is. Right? But I'm guessing that's what you think. Whenever I see pictures, right, whenever people draw or do whatever, we don't have pictures of Jesus. Normally not ugly. Because in our mind, that's what we think a leader is. That's what we picture as our Savior. The fact is, the Bible doesn't give us much about the looks of Jesus. We have what Isaiah says, that he will be unassuming. We have in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We have that. But a lot of the other things we have make us think he wasn't very assuming. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 through 57, the first part of 57, listen to this. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? 
And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they, notice this, took offense at him. So it wasn't like Jesus rolled into town and everybody was like, we always expected it of this one. He wasn't the golden child. He walks into town and he starts teaching them and they're blown away like, what, from you? Isn't that your dad? Isn't that your mom? They're nothing special. Are these not your siblings that are around us? I can't believe this guy is the one sharing this with us today. And it was so bad that they got angry that it was him. They were frustrated that it was him. Because this isn't the person they would pick. So not only is Isaiah telling us that the Savior would be unassuming, we also, he also says that the Savior will know suffering and sorrow. So not just doesn't have all the looks, but also lives a pretty cruddy life. A life that none of us would pick for ourselves or for our children or for anybody that we like. A life of sorrow. The Savior here has promised to live a life of difficulty. No special palace. No special ability. No ability to be free from sickness, from disease, from pain, from stress, from anxiety. I've heard of any kind. The Savior could not avoid any of this stuff. And what we see in Jesus is this is exactly the life he lived. Jesus would have people to come to him looking for a free ride at times, and his response often would be simply, I have nothing to give you. I know you want something from me. I don't have anything to give you. In fact, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, foxes have holes and birds have the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's homeless. I don't have any place of my own. I don't have any place to go. And again, if that's not enough, we also know that he was despised by men. In Matthew 27, verse 24 through 25, it says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I'm sure one of the things that you want for your children, I'm sure one of the things that you want for yourself is to be liked. Now some of you walk around with this persona that you don't care if you're liked, but that is your persona to make sure that you guard yourself from not being liked. We all know that. I can do that pretty well also. But deep down, we all want to be liked. We all want to be desired, and we want that again for those who we love and care for. Yet Isaiah tells us our Savior, oh, it ain't going to be this way for him. A man of sorrow, despised and rejected. But then it continues on in verse 4. Let's read verses 4 through 6. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see here in verses 4 through 6, we see the Savior's gift. The Savior's gift of life. 
And it tells us here in Isaiah that the Savior will be crushed by God. Now, isn't this an odd prophecy? Such an odd prophecy of a Savior who is supposed to redeem and restore. Remember we just read chapter 52. You're going to be redeemed. You're going to be taken out. Okay, who's our leader? Let's go. Oh, it's this guy. Unassuming. He's going to live a life of sorrow and of grief. Oh, and by the way, then he's going to be crushed. He's going to be smitten. He's going to be broken. Wouldn't you sit there and say, what? How's that guy? How's that guy going to do anything for me? Such an odd prophecy we have here. Grief, sorrow, stricken, pierced, crust, chastisement, iniquity. These are not words I want to hear of my Savior. If you, if you work in a business and the business is kind of struggling, and all of a sudden your boss comes in or your owner comes in and he says, I've got the answer. And you're like, what? What is it? We're bringing in this guy. All right. And he's going to take us where we need to go. All right, can I see his, you know, can I see his resume a little bit? And, and it's highlighted on there, uh, lazy, uh, underachiever, right? Uh, nobody likes him, does not work well with others, has been fired 15 times. This is our man to take us to the next level. What are you going to think? You're going to think our boss is crazy. I need to find a new job. Yet Israel's promised this restoration. Israel's promised this redemption. And these are the words for the Savior? Grief and sorrow, stricken and pierced. See, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 to 50, we start to understand a little bit of this passage in the life of Jesus. Because it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And his words here in Matthew, we get an understanding of this crushing, don't we? You know, the question could be, though, maybe, maybe the Savior deserves this. Maybe. Maybe there was a reason for all of this. Maybe it was something that he had done that caused this to need to be done, to where he needed to die on this cross. Maybe, maybe Jesus deserved this. What we see here in this section of verses 4 through 6 in Isaiah, that the Savior does all of this not because of his guilt, not because of his shame, because of our guilt. Notice how in this section all of this is done because of us. Every single line of it. He's borne our grief. He's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that bought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Then it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, not him, us. So as we dive into this, we realize that 
this life that our Savior will have and lives in the horrifying scene that we're picturing here is not because He deserves it, but it's actually because we deserve it. It's because they deserved it. And so we have verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that shows this to us. It says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. This is the part, for those of you who are blind this morning, I'm praying God will open your eyes. That you will understand today, maybe for the first time, that this race of life is not a race that you can win and conquer on your own. It must be done by somebody else in your place. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Christ Jesus has done it for you. It's not a race you can win. You can't buckle yourself up anymore and go any faster to get to the finish line fast enough to win this race. It's impossible. You must trust in the one that God has sent, his son, Jesus, to do it for you. He's the one who can bear your shame and your guilt before God Almighty. And he's done it because he loves you. And I hope that you'll believe that and I hope that you will trust that. He's done all of this, it says, for our guilt. I want you to see in the next verses 7 through 9 that he does this willingly. Go ahead, follow along. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. <clears throat> By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, it's one thing for us as people to have somebody else's burdens come upon us because it just happens to be that way. Maybe you face that within your family at times of where something happens within the life of your family, and now all of a sudden you have burdens put on you that you didn't necessarily want, you don't necessarily want to be a part of it, but you know you have to do it because it's family and it's the right thing to do. And so you're saying, I'm willing to bear this burden for now. And so you do your best to bear your, that burden along with your family member or whatever the case might be. That's one situation. It's something drastically different to walk willingly into a situation to say, give me your burden, I'll bear it. When you don't have to do it. There's nothing obligating you to it. You're saying, I will willingly bear this burden right now. Again, we've all been forced into these situations and out of duty or maybe just out of guilt, we've fulfilled this role. But the picture that we have here of the Savior from Isaiah is we're going to have a Savior who is one who is like a lamb being led to slaughter. And the picture here is quietly and happily going to the place of death. Now, a lamb is dumb. They just jolly going around, not knowing where, what is about to happen to them. But that's not the case of this Savior. The difference is that this Savior knows exactly what is happening, knows full well what is happening the whole time. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we see this in Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, in Jesus, he willingly emptied himself, gave up all of glory to take on the form of a servant, to be wrapped in flesh like one of us, not to live this great grand life which many of us get to live, a life of relative ease and comfort. But no, he did it to go to a cross knowingly. It didn't surprise Jesus that he would die on a cross. He knew it all along. And he willingly would do this. And here's the big kicker, verse 10. First part of verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We must not make any mistake when trying to understand the work of Christ and thinking that all of this just happened by accident. This grand story of the baby being born, being placed in a manger, the angels coming and singing to the shepherds, the wise men coming and giving their gifts, all these things that happened in Christ's life, the disciples, the miracles, the parables, all these different things, all the way to the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We must not sit and think that this was just some fortunate act that happened by accident. We must not also think that it was some reactionary plan by God the Father because man messed up. The Bible tells us that this was planned from the foundations of the earth. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he had blessed us in the beloved. Before the foundations of the world, this plan was put in place. For those of us who by grace through faith have been saved, this plan was put in place for you. How astonishing to think that this baby, that this Savior would do all of this for me. Instead of the plan being, you know what? Adam and Eve sinned. I think they should bear some weight. I think they should owe up to the consequences of their actions. Therefore, God could have decided this is what we're going to do. For every sin, this must happen. For every sin, this must take place. And what he could have done is given us a book with every sin that you could think of and put a point list up there. And then there was ways to get rid of your points. And it wouldn't be easy, but this is what needs to be done. That could have been the plan if God wanted it to be the plan. But instead, the plan that God had from the foundations of the world was for his son to come and take your place. To pay for your consequences. 
be despised, to be smitten. And if that's not enough, as we see in verse 10, what is the worst of all of it? For the Lord to crush him. For the Lord to crush him. What we see on the cross isn't just man crushing another man. Even though that's what's taking place. Mankind is crushing a man to death. But what makes Jesus' death so unique is at the same time as man is trying to do their worst to him, God the Father is crushing him also as he bears the weight of my sin that I should have to bear, but no, he bears it. And what's so interesting about this is when you look at this scene, it seems to contradict what we read last week in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember, when the serpent did what he did and deceived Adam and Eve, there was a curse brought on the serpent and there was a promise. And within that promise it said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. What it seems like here is there's a mistake. Because it seems like the seed of the woman is being crushed. It seems like this this isn't coming true. Does it not? Because it says right here that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the response from the people might be, but I thought his heel was just supposed to be bruised. But now you're talking about a crushing. Something seems off. Something doesn't seem right. Well, we see this in the end here of this chapter, and let's do it quickly. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What do we see here in this section? Well, we finally see the Savior's exaltation. What we've been hoping for and what we've been waiting for. There's a promise here of the prolonging of his days. His days being prolonged and and numerous and forever. Even with his death, even with his crushing, there is no stopping this Savior. Not even death can do it. That's the promise we see here. And in Christ and this baby that we we worship in Jesus, we see that this is true. Because Jesus did not stay buried. He did not stay crushed. He did not stay in a grave. In Matthew 28, we have this. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has arisen. Come and see. Come and see where he was laid. He's no longer here. So we have this promise of the Savior having a prolonging of days, and we see this fulfilled in Christ. Because it wasn't soon after his resurrection that we have his ascension, to where Jesus raises on high to live forever, to where we actually can have a Savior whose days are prolonged, who can always bear my shame and my guilt. And this is why it says there at the end of our chapter that many are accounted as righteous. The work of the Savior that's being promised here in Isaiah is one that produces perfect results. Many will believe and be accounted as righteous 
because of his righteousness. And so I want you to hear this. For all of us this morning, the perfect life of Christ will be theirs. His death will be theirs. His penalty of being crushed will be theirs. His resurrection will be theirs. His inheritance will be theirs. His exaltation is theirs. We have these promises because of Christ. And in Romans 6, 4, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Today in Jesus, we have the gift that only he's able to give us. No one else can do for you what Christ has done, what Jesus has done. And I ask you the question that Isaiah asked at the beginning of chapter 53. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? Do you believe that he is the savior of the world? You know, it's interesting. Before I uh, was studying this passage this week, I think it was Tuesday morning, I was driving in my truck and I was thinking about this question of myself. You know, driving in the country, the fields all around. I, don't, I didn't have anyone in the car with me at the time. And the question that's popped in my head is, Tim, do you actually believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is? Tim, do you really have all of your eggs in that basket? Is your hope really firmly cemented on the work of Christ and not on the work of yourself? I had to go back and forth with that question. In the end, the answer is yes. I have nothing else to stand on. I have nothing in me. Because when I look at me, I see selfishness, I see bitterness, I see frustration, I see guilt, I see, I see shame. When I really look inside of Tim, knowing Tim, knowing who I am, when I try to gather it all together and say, but I could put this presentation before God and maybe he'll think something good of me. No, I, I don't have that. There's no presentation to give. So all I can do is trust in Christ and who he is. And I say all as if that's something small. No, I, I don't mean it that way. The Bible's very clear. Before the foundation of the world ever was, God had determined that Jesus Christ, his son, would die in Tim's place. Not because Tim is special. Oh no, it's because I was sold into slavery for nothing. And I could redeem myself for nothing. But he and his love would redeem me. There's many of you in here this morning who you have the same story. We could say, we were baptized into his death and raised to walk in a newness of life because of the work that he accomplished, not the work that we accomplished. But I know there's those of you this morning that is not your story. And again, I pray that God would open your eyes to that truth, that he would reveal himself to you today through his word so that you would finally, like we read in Revelation there, bow before the king. And give your life and submit and to understand his love, hopefully, maybe for the first time. 
But for us as believers, don't take that for granted. I was glad God put that question into my head as I was driving in my truck to really think, Tim, do you believe? And it brought back just those thoughts and the remembrance of what a blessing it is to be a child of God. As we celebrate Christmas, and again, you know, you look at this little picture of the mom and the dad and the baby and how, how sweet it is to know that was intended for me. It really was a gift for me. And it's a gift that only Jesus was able to accomplish for me. Well, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. We're going to pray together. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God today. And we're going to sing a song to close. And so I trust that you will. I hope that you'll trust in Christ and his gift that only he can give. God, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us. God, I I thank you that this baby, Jesus, that we look at, that we celebrate this time of year, our kids color pictures and coloring books, the Christmas scene, that baby, very unassuming, nothing spectacular, despised and rejected by men, would live a life of suffering, where we're told in Hebrews was made perfect through his suffering. This Jesus who would live a life that none of us would want for our children. He did this knowingly. And he did this to show the love of the Father for us. So that he could be our mediator. So that he could be our savior. So that he could be the one that redeemed us. Not being bought with money, no. Being bought with the blood of Jesus. So God, this morning I pray that for all of us who are Christians today, who've been saved by that blood, I pray that you would help us to praise you and worship you. Help us not to forsake you in that. God, bring excitement to our soul, bring happiness and joy and peace and hope, because that's what you've promised through that. And so God, I pray that we would not allow Satan to rob us of that joy day in and day out with the struggles of life. But to know that just as Jesus struggled in this life, he conquered it for us. And on the day when we pass, on the day when we die, whenever that is, your word tells us that because of him, because of that Savior, death is our victory. To where we get to spend eternity with you forever with no more pain, with no more suffering, with no more disappointment, no more hurt, no more tears. And so God, we thank you for that gift that we get to celebrate this time of year. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to those who you haven't revealed yourself to yet. Save their soul, redeem them through the blood of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.